The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. My name is Dave Goldberg, I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and today we're uh, fortunate to be joined by the president of Olds College in Canada, uh, Tom Thompson. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you very much, David. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, and and in a moment, we want to jump into our topic of future-proofing higher ed with you. I've been writing and speaking on this subject, and we want to get your views on that. But before we do, uh, Tom, listeners can learn more about your background from the the biography on the program page, but what one or two things should should our listeners know about you before we we start? Well, uh, David, I'd say that uh, because of my... uh, uh, sporting and athletic background, I would say that uh, people should understand that uh, I have, a, I suppose, a, a high competitive nature, and um, I think that that uh, shows through in in terms of my uh, thinking and uh, working and uh, moving forward. I think the other thing that has always been inherent in my uh, growth and development has been a um, uh, a marketing orientation, um, the idea that uh, um, there is product service development and that it uh, has to be properly distributed, it has to be properly uh, promoted and uh, properly priced. And um, and so that's uh, something I've carried with me throughout my career. Yeah, so and, and actually in your official bio didn't have, I, I found it on Wikipedia, but, but you were involved in, uh, you were a co- uh, uh, a football coach, and you were uh, you were involved in front office activities in both Canadian and U.S. Uh, football. Uh, what were those experiences like? Well, they were great. Um, um, I think in the big picture of things, I I actually went from um, education, um, where I had been a, um, a a school teacher and a coach, and uh, onward into a university as a athletic director and a head basketball coach. And I went into the private sector, into professional sport front office management, and then and then after a number of years, I I returned to the post secondary sector in uh, in Canada, and uh, I, I thought that uh, 
that time that I had spent in the private sector was every bit as applicable as my my doctorate degree. Oh, that's, that's fascinating, and and uh, and the blocking and tackling probably help as a as a <laughs> college president. And so and so, tell us a little bit about Olds College too. Some of our, especially our listeners in the United States, may be less familiar with the university college distinction in in Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, in in Canada, of course, um, um, post secondary education is a provincial responsibility. And uh, Olds College is in the province of Alberta, Western Canada, about an hour to the north of um, Calgary, Alberta. And um, we're one of the oldest uh, institutions of our kind in the, in the nation. Uh, we're in our 103rd year, uh, just having recently celebrated our centennial in fine style in 2013, we're we're um, um, a college that was established um, 103 years ago because of the need for um, agricultural production, education, and training. And as the um, years have gone by, that has evolved into a uh, programmatic mix of agriculture, horticulture, uh, land, environmental management, uh, rural entrepreneurship, uh, agribusiness all within an integrated learning environment and uh, applied research and innovate, uh, in innovation culture. And, and thinking about uh, 1913 as a year, as 10 years after the Wright brothers, not that long after many of the of, – uh, we, we had uh, one of uh, Thomas Edison's uh, grand, great-grandnieces on the show and not that long after many of his inventions. So that was an interesting uh, time for a school to, to be founded. Um, and on this show, we're, in, we're particularly interested in, in education that unleashes young people. And, and so I'm curious about some of your unleashing experiences. Clearly, you've had this interesting trajectory of uh, educator uh, athletics uh, at, at many and many levels in the private sector and then back to back to higher ed. Uh, you know, what what would you consider to be some of the experiences that unleashed you to sort of paint on such a broad canvas of life? Well, I, I think that um, I think that I've always uh, been an educator at heart in, in so much that uh, first and foremost, um, I, I value teaching and I uh, I value the fact that I became a teacher, and, and those skills and abilities of a teacher, of course, you take them with you throughout uh, the course of your life. You take them into your coaching. You take them into your front office uh, um, experiences in the private sector. You take them with you when you become a, um, a college uh, administrator, and um, so the, the whole teaching component has been very, very uh, influential in, in, my, uh, in my background. I think the other thing, of course, was those years that I, I spent in the private sector, David, and that I had um, the, the good fortune to have some uh, uh, good mentors and uh, who helped me to understand that uh, if I was going to be able to survive and grow in that sector, I would have to understand that uh, I would need to be doing more than is expected of me. Mm. Uh, and um, also that security was my, is myself, not somebody else. Yeah, so then that's interesting. And so was there someone in particular that sort of uh, 
had helped you come to some key insights or was there someone someone that you would like to recognize or call out in that way? Well, I, I, yeah, as a young man, I, I was influenced greatly in my readings, uh, particularly by the great John, uh, the great coach, John Wooden. Mm. And, and uh, that not only influenced my thinking in terms of uh, high-performance athletics, but it also influenced my development in, in terms of my values and my uh, beliefs. I think the going into professional sport, I was influenced uh, uh, by the late um, Jim Spavital, who uh, I worked with with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders of the CFL and then ultimately with the uh, Michigan Panthers of the USFL. And he was, um, he was adamant that uh, everybody that worked with him uh, did more than was expected of them and uh, understood that security was yourself. Nice. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. And so we want to talk about uh, future, what you call future proofing. But so what do we, what do we need to be future proofed against? What are the? We face a time of great challenge in higher ed. What's 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 going on from your perspective? What is what's the future bringing, and what what are the challenges? Well, I I think that you know it, it it's almost it's almost trite to, you know to talk about the um, the post World War II. Uh, model of uh, post-secondary education and and how um, most of our um, uh, governments, whether they be in Canada or the United States, decided to fund them. But you know, in, in terms of just the, the the last 30 years that I've been actively involved in it, then it's uh, it hasn't evolved as 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 quickly as it should have in terms of the amount of change that was impacting it from um, multiple sectors, whether it was the, um, uh, the changing demographic of the student or the, or the uh, exponential change in technology that was occurring or the fiscal model of funding higher education that just seemed to be so very, very static over the course of the past 30 years while other priorities seemed to creep in and, and take uh, preeminence. I think there was a multitude of things that have been impacting the sector, but probably the biggest challenge has been that, uh, that inability um, to adapt, uh, the inability yes. to be nimble, uh, to be more agile, the ability to reconfigure these post-World War II models of post-secondary education. And, uh, and so, you know, here we are today, and we have in many parts of North America, we have, as a result of the, um, of the uh, building to accommodate the booming, the boomer sector, we have infrastructure that many of these provincial and state organizations can't afford yes. to maintain and operate. Yeah, so, and, and, and of course, readers of A Whole New Engineer will know that I agree with you that, you know, we face great challenges and, and the times have changed, and yet we, we actually have these institutions that go back to the 11th century, and in many ways, the governance structure is, is recognizable, and, and uh, the institutional structure is recognizable, and, and so it's, it's, it's a problem. And then, there, and then there are folks like Clay Christensen that's saying that, Higher ed is currently being disrupted, and there are other models coming in. And then guys like Peter Thiel saying, uh, "Hey, young young folks, d don't go to college, don't go to university." So, so is is the problem as serious as as some people are saying? Uh, 
Well, there, there's likely a, a, a significant degree of seriousness, but I, I think that the, one of the things that, that would be um, very helpful to the post-secondary se- sector all across our, our, our continent would be to either have it return to the public consciousness or maybe uh, get into the public consciousness for the first time. I mean, when we talk about having a, uh, a globally competitive um, province or a globally competitive uh, country, um, it first and foremost begins with your education system. And of course, to unleash innovation, uh, to make it the, 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 your, your, uh, where you live the best place to live, work, play, visit, innovate, and so on, we have to understand that post-secondary education is an investment and not a, what it has been termed in so many quarters over the last number of years, uh, uh, um, an expense. So seldom, David, would you ever see it as an election issue. Uh, at the regional level, at the provincial level, at the national level. There's so many other apparently important things to talk about that it never really bubbles up and it never really gets the kind of spotlight it deserves. That's serious. Well, and, and, I, I, and I think you're right. And that's, that's actually a very interesting point that it's something that we, that it's in the background in, in many cases, and it's not something that we put on the front burner in, in terms of our politics, but, but, uh, Maybe it is something that we we should take as seriously as that, and and so in in the next segment, I want us to pursue this idea of what it means to to future proof uh, an institution of of higher education. And so, uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest uh, Tom Thompson, president of Olds College. And in the next segment, we want to we want to talk about future proofing our institutions of higher education. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with uh, Dave Goldberg and guest Tom Thompson. Um, We urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at www.wholenewengineer.org. And before the break, we were were talking with our guest Tom Thompson, president of Olds College in Canada, in Alberta, Canada, uh, about future-proofing our institutions of higher education. So, so Tom, what is future-proofing a college or a university about? Well, let me let me say this, David. I, you know, in uh, in our country, there, there recently over the last number of years, there was a book published called Macroeconomics. But uh, within it, uh, they talked about higher education, and within higher education, they they uh, they projected by the year 2030, they we may very well see uh, only about 50 percent of these higher education institutions the way they presently. Are um, are uh, existing by the time we hit that year. So when you talk about the idea of future-proofing an institution, you've really got an eye uh, upon what lies ahead over this next 15 years or so, and 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 further. And what you're trying to do is put yourself as an institution in a position to be there uh, by the time that you do get to 2030, and and be relevant, and 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 have adapted and uh, be much more nimble and responsive and be much more accountable and be um, a home of uh, centers of specialization and highly accessible to diverse populations of students. So in a nutshell, what you're doing is you're taking a look at the future and you're envisioning what it will take to be around in the next 15 years or more. Well, and so... um and so that's that's a load of stuff, and you know, there were a, there were a bunch of elements um, uh, to that. And so underneath the idea of future proofing are some assumptions, or maybe not. But I guess maybe the way to ask it is, what are the assumptions underneath future proofing? Are we assuming the same kind of government funding, or government funding, or the same kinds of institutions, or the same kinds of student bodies? What is it that, that we're assuming when we when we talk about future proofing? Well, I think we're, talk, we're talking about um, funding uh, models, that, for one thing, that appear to be moving in a southward position. We're talking about a public consciousness of post-secondary education that seems to have waned. We're talking about um, a student demand for relevancy and uh, high-tech uh, seems to be picking up a tremendous amount of steam. And so... What you're trying to do is you're trying to put your institution into a position to get real and to actually deal with these situational realities and to respond accordingly. And and 
of course, as I couldn't agree more that there's a need to, to do this, but it's a it's a difficult. It seems to me that it's a difficult thing to do from, say, the president's office. Um, there are a lot of voices. You know, the governance models, for example, are shared models. They're not corporate models, and and. Um, for those of us who have been faculty members in certain ways, thank thank goodness for that. But, but, but how do you know? So how do you've got all these? You know, what the the usual metaphor for for getting faculty to do anything is the notion of herding cats. So how how do you get such a diverse um, uh, um, group of talented people to sort of move in a direction that is counter essentially countercultural that goes against the cultural norms? of what a university or college has been historically. Yeah, it's a very it's a very complex uh question, David. But let me say this that it first and foremost does begin with governance. It does begin with the idea that governance is stewardship. Governance is many things, but first and foremost, it's to leave these higher education institutions in better condition than when you came to them. I think that it would be fair to say that uh, uh, at this point in time, whether you're talking about unicameral or or bicameral or tricameral, is that we could do a much, much better job at the governance level. We could do certainly a much better job in the education and training and preparedness and readiness for the people that are fulfilling these obligations and these responsibilities and these roles. I think in most states, in most uh, provinces across our country were quite deficient in terms of uh, governance preparedness as it as it comes with the appointments uh, of people to these various boards. But once appointed, this is an enormous responsibility to do exactly what you're talking about, and that is to get everybody pulling in the same direction. And it's a huge responsibility to articulate the ends of the institution, and that being the values, the vision, the mission, the outcome, to vet them accordingly, to allow proper consultation and, and inputs, and then to then design your entire strategic and operational planning in every facet of the operation based upon the outcomes of that uh, the predetermined outcomes of that institution. We're in a results-based business now, particularly if we're preparing people for globalization, particularly if we're going to unleash the innovation. And so in every facet of these organizations, people have to be pulling and steering in the same direction. Well, and so there's so there's governance of say the these the boards of trustees or board of governors or whatever you know whatever it's called in a particular institution, and then there are also their various um, uh, faculty responsibilities in this, and then even the students have have responsibility in this. So um, so governance is a piece, and another piece that you've called out is the need to be entrepreneurial or innovative. So can you give us some so what give us some examples of 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 ways to be entrepreneurial or innovative um, in in a future proofing kind of way well i th- i think that i think that uh we 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 need to come to the realization that we can't do these things alone we can't perpetuate siloism I'll give you an example of that in terms of your question with regards to innovation and entrepreneurship. One thing that's very clear is that partnerships are essential. When you take a look just at our institution today in terms of uh, 
um, all of the various partnerships that we would have, whether they are corporate, institutional, uh, private, public, no matter what, we have well over 500 partnerships that we are com- that we constantly have to nurture and grow to make great things happen for students. And so, to 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 move forward with a uh, uh, a renewed future-proofing attitude, you have to come to the realization that co-investment and partnerships are absolutely essential. And so I think when we were talking before, I think one of the examples that came up we had to do with student housing, that that uh, partnering with uh, people in the private sector to come up with um, uh, high-quality, uh, modern kinds of student student housing was a was was something that was was a big area that that took some of the, some of the things off the plate of the of the college and 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 got them into hands that were in some ways more experienced. Hmm. Well, you know, there is a, a situational reality uh, which has a, a fiscal element to it that that then drives the imagination and creativity into a brand new innovation of uh, private sector housing development. One thing that's clear, if you're losing at a rate of about percent per annum in uh, public support over the past 30 years, you're not going to be able to continue to fund housing at the same rate that you were funding it in the past, whether you're talking about caretaking, security, administration, and, and operations, renewal, all of these things, to say nothing about capital, capital development or capital redevelopment. So one of the newer business models that you see emerging throughout North America is what is called a design, build it, finance it, and operate it, a DBF&O model. And as a result, what the higher education institution has to be able to do is they've got to see their way clear to work with the private sector in terms of whether we're talking about a land lease or you're talking about seven sub-agreements that maintain the kind of quality that you're looking for for the full student experience. Yes. And, and, and that ties in, and, and you've used the term fiscal nimbleness. Uh, how does that tie in with, with uh, future-proofing? So what is, was that an example of being fisc- fiscally nimble, or, or how, do, how else does fiscal nimbleness express itself? It is an, it is an example of it, David, but certainly uh, the roots of fiscal nimbleness go right back to the door of um, – highly effective policy governance because it is within highly effective policy governance that you should be able to find executive limitations. You should be able to find fiscal constraint. You should be able to find evidence of fiscal nimbleness being a high priority of these institutions. Give you an example. Take a look and see what the institution has to say in a in a policy governance sense, sense about uh, the retention of unreserved net assets. Take a look at what they say about the retention of surplus funds. Take a look at what they say about the retention of infrastructure maintenance uh, capital improvements. Take a look at what they say about new program development funds. All of these things are absolutely critical if you're going to become agile and you're going to be operating in a debt-free, non-deficit manner. 
Yeah. So, and, and so it seems like there's, and, and actually the, these things are, you know, we were talking before that, the, you know, about herding cats and so forth, but many of these things are in the purview of um, president's office and the board of trustees or the, you know, the governing boards and so forth. And so, so what I'm hearing is that there's, there's room to be creative and, and much of the creativity involves in, involves sort of big picture financial matters and and uh, thinking differently about the constitution of of the institution. It's it's akin to the um, to industry uh, under that underwent the quality revolution and the entrepreneurial revolution, sort of uh, spinning off things that were not part of their core competence. Is is that a fair analogy? Well, I, I think it gets. I think it gets at it. You know, David. Another way of looking at it too, in addition, would be just to just do a uh, an environmental scan over the say the past year at some of the higher um, um, uh, criteria that uh, institutions and boards are looking for in their senior administrators. Mm-hmm. In addition to being a uh, educator and researcher of renown. You'll find things like uh, team player, image maker, marketer, visionary, financier, economist, manager, strategist. I mean, where what, where are we producing these people? Well, and, and, and a certain yes, and to a certain extent, they haven't. The academy of old hasn't valued them as as we need them now. We we need a different kind of person, as as you're saying. Well, and we're we've got about a minute left. What else? Um, what else should our our listeners know about future proofing? That uh, there's a lot to talk about. But if if we just had to talk about one or two more things, what else should they know? Well, I, I I just think that it's such an exciting sector. Higher education is such an exciting sector, but it's not only exciting and dynamic and continuously changing, but it it it, it is an area that is absolutely essential for our economies. When we talk about things like the diversification of an economy, well, diversification of an economy actually begins with the education sector. It begins with higher education doing the job it needs to be able to do, both academically and vocationally and technically. And it needs great people with that are coming to it and are prepared to think and dream big. They're, they're, they're prepared to build it simply, and they're most importantly, uh, be prepared to act now. Beautiful. How can people uh, find out more uh, about you, about Olds College? Uh, can, they, can they write to you? Can they go to a website? Yeah, we can uh, access uh, all of my information on uh, our Olds College website. I'd be more than happy to, uh, to discuss matters with uh, any and all. And thank you very much for the opportunity, David. Thanks, thanks, Tom, for for joining us. Um, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio. We've we've had uh, special guest uh, Tom Thompson, president of Olds College, with us. Uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk about the the STEM pipeline: science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, with uh, Gina Cherkowski. Come back and join us then. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? 
Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg. Get the coaching and deep faculty development training you need to help transform higher education at www.3joy.com. This segment... um, we're joined by um, uh, an entrepreneur and change agent, uh, Gina Cherkowski. Welcome to the show, Gina. Thank you. It's an honor and privilege to be here. Well, uh, and thanks for taking time out. Um, uh, listeners can find out more about your background on your bio, but um, if, if you had a chance to tell them just one or two things about you, what, what should our listeners know about you? Well, I think um, it's interesting, my, my pathway to where I am today. I used to be a math teacher, and uh, in teaching the different streams of math, which we had here in Canada, um, I, I learned a lot about working with kids who struggled uh, to, to understand mathematics and to be mathematically literate. And so I did a lot of research in that end. I, I ended up doing a master's degree on students at risk and uh, found out a lot of interesting things about how we can teach math differently if we wanted to get more kids in the game and ended up um, doing a Ph.D. down in the U.S., and um, from that I did a little more research down that stream, but also got very interested in the STEM pipeline because we know mathematics is a gatekeeper to the STEM pipeline. And I did a lot of research on how can we get more kids in the game again, but um, took a little bit of a different approach. When I came back to Canada, I started working with um, developing sort of new ways to be innovative in my teaching and to help others do the same. So I use visual models for learning. Um, We are now integrating even robots into the math classroom so that we can get kids engaged in mathematics by doing something else, using other tools as a platform to sort of engage them and captivate them. And then they kind of are learning math to high levels, but in a very different way than traditionally. So, and that's how I kind of came to be where I am. I really got involved in STEM and realized that that just provided multiple entry points for so many students to get into mathematics, and that's where I am today. Well, and and your career, you know, you've you've done you've done some interesting things in your career. And on this show, we're interested in unleashing experiences. So, was there like one? Was there a point at which you sort of felt unleashed to kind of go your own way, or were there people that helped you um, have insight that enabled you to 
kind of unleash yourself and have the courage to do what you're doing now? Um, I think so. Along the pathway, I met so many different interesting change agents that inspired me. Um, in particular, there was a professor from University of Saskatchewan a long time ago um, who, interestingly enough, I was just at STEM Fest in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and ran into on the street. But that was one of the first most influential people for me because she was a teacher but taught in a non-traditional way. Um, I, my parents were also both teachers, and I think my dad was uh, my dad is a math teacher, but my mom is a special ed teacher. I started to really understand the neuroscience behind learning from my mom, and then I really got into the math from my dad. So I sort of combined those two worlds, and that mm. really impacted the way I understood math. I was a very visual thinker, and so instantly I was able to make pictures of what was going on, and if I couldn't, I, I had somebody at home who could help me do it. So that's sort of how I wanted to become that person for so many kids today, especially being inside the classroom for so many years and having kids feel, you know, quote-unquote, they would say, I'm stupid, I don't get it, I can't do it. And I would just be like, you know, we can access mathematical knowledge if we just get you there a different way. And so it was also the students who really inspired me. Yeah. But because we're limited as teachers, um, and when I had an opportunity to go on to higher education in the U.S., I, I decided, well, that's maybe the way I can make changes in the world, become a professor. And certainly we did fascinating work. We did amazing research. But to filter that down into classroom at the classroom level, it takes a lot of time. So I just became I, you know, very aware that if I wanted to make a change, I could be more of a disruptive innovator coming from the outside. And, and that's what we're doing here right now in Calgary and well, in Alberta. And that's what we're doing here on Big Beacon Radio, too. I guess I left the university for many of the same reasons. It's sometimes it's hard to change change things from inside the, the system. And and, uh, and we want to turn to STEM and, and, and how we can shake that up and along the lines that you, you've been doing. But uh, you just heard uh, President Thompson and his thoughts about future-proofing. What, what, uh, what, what big things stuck with you um, from, from that conversation? Um, I love the think and dream big. I love mm. build it simply and act now. And I think those are sort of valuable skills for um, leaders to think about, but these are things we need our students to think about. We, um, I think we often stifle their dreams sometimes by having them jump through the hoops in a traditional education setting, but I think it's time to unleash them and, ha and let them think and dream big. Also teaching them the lean canvas methodology of an innovator or entrepreneur, how they can build something simply. I think that's really important. And teaching students the ability to pivot, uh, be adaptable. And, and I, I heard that um, yes. in the conversation. And uh, acting now, I think, is critical because I think we need to stay technologically literate. We need to have these, this mindset to be adaptable and to, to pivot and change. And I think that um, if we don't act now, we're going to be behind behind the ball here i'm actually quite concerned about it which is exactly why i'm doing what i'm doing well and and you know and all those all the things that you said that you brought forward from that conversation are things that are in many ways countercultural i mean so education for the most part kind of teaches us to not do anything until we get the right answer on all the exam questions and and we're sort of we're sort of stuck on on that model so so there there so there are problems in, in STEM education generally, mathematics education, uh, engineering education, technology education, until very recently have been almost non-existent in K-12, and we, it's all been science and math, and we've been doing this kind of traditional job. What's, what's the, what, what are the big rocks in, in, 
in the STEM crisis or the what's going on in STEM education from your perspective? Well, um, certainly one of the one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking a moment ago is our curriculum really confines the, us in the way we teach and, and also time. The time allotments we have for each of our curricular areas, I know as a math teacher, you know, it was like I only had two weeks for that unit, and if you didn't get it, I had to move on. Um, I think we're really confined by that as well as assessments. So as long as assessments are valuing certain things, then it's very hard to change the way we teach. So if we really want all kids to learn something, to have mathematical skills, to be computationally literate, you know, to develop um, the ability to adapt and, and move and, and, their, and to really, really hone some um, technological skills, like to be highly technologically literate, then we've got to take time out of the equation, and that's very counter-education. We're sort of on this efficiency model of tradition where we have to put everyone in, input everyone, and, and spit them out after 12 years, but I really think that we need to start adjusting that, that time thing. So um, those, are, those are my big, I think, Yeah, and so how do, we, how do we do that effect? I mean, so you've studied, uh, you've studied the learning aspects of the, how do we do that effectively? You mentioned the sort of turning the curriculum on its head and putting robots in to, to help motivate kids to to then want to understand the math versus making them the do the math bef- before they have the chocolate of the robots to do is is that right. is that part of the is that part of it? Um, well, so the, first of all, uh, pockets of innovation are occurring all over the place in in Canada and in the U.S. So it's it's very exciting to see some people are you know jumping in there and taking the challenge to be innovative and to uh, back away from traditional constraints or to say this is not the way we're going to do it here um, i'm very fortunate i work with rundle academy in uh, calgary and they are one of those innovators so we get to do a lot of interesting things for example we 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 are doing a robotics program in the school even though this isn't a traditional part of our curriculum and we're able to infuse other things but for the most part, what I've found is we are being asked to come in and do all kinds of after-school programs and lunch school programs because of a lot of the stuff we offer isn't in a traditional curriculum. And I think e, we, are from, we are slowly working our way inside the classrooms to do actually, you, we can teach math by using robots. We can actually teach uh, literacy skills, language skills by using coding and app development and gaming. So there's all kinds of ways to use the new technologies as tools to get to the traditional, um, you know, content areas. But we are trying to really uh, make the point that we've got to blur the lines, we've got to get rid of the silos, we've got to integrate all subjects together and use technology as a tool for all of that. And like I said, some schools are innovators and, and are willing to bring us in, and we're happy to do that. And uh, I think from that we're, we're creating this excitement and buzz where more people are willing to um, see what we're doing but a lot of people are standing back and waiting for us to prove that this works, which fortunately we're getting excellent results, and it's very exciting the work we're doing. Well, and it's always been a puzzler to me that math, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm a math and science guy. I love math and science, but the primary human impulse, there's no chicken or egg problem, right? And so we, people, human ancestors were making were making. Uh, axe stone axes two and a half million years ago. What if we want to talk about math and number? We're you know, what? What maybe number? We're talking ten thousand years. We're talking. It's not even close. The technology and technology was even was pre is believed to have been pre-verbal. That that in some ways 
speaking was a kind of technology that evolved from the hand, the passing around of artifacts. So there's no chicken or egg problem, and yet it's uh, always been a puzzler to me, or for a long time has been a puzzler to me, why we do the most abstract and most difficult things first, science and math first, as gateways to the thing is, that is the more human impulse. That Agree or disagree? Take, take me to that's That's not necessarily a popular view among math teachers. Oh, I, I love what you just said, that technology is almost pre-verbal, because I'm, I, I talk a lot about if we really want to get kids in the game, and we really need to, and we need to do it at young ages, because we know that early math skills are the greatest predictor of future academic success. We even know that that's, they, they're a greater predictor than early reading skills, socioeconomic factors, so this is critical. We need to get kids in the game, we need to get them in the game young, and we need to stop them feeling like they can't do math or they hate math, which they do at young ages. And I yes. think what you've just said is key, because once we take away the visual and we add the verbal or the symbolic representations, we're using the verbal linguistic system, and kids are, a lot of them come to us and they actually want to use the spatial temporal reasoning system. They want to see what's happening. We take away the opportunity for them to see what's happening in math, and we give them the symbolic representations a little bit too early for a lot of kids, and then we turn them off. But we can actually get them engaged in the game if we just change it and, and do kind of embrace using more visual models and structures to teach math. Um, so I do yeah. think that technology provides this huge opportunity, like never before. So I can be working with kids who struggle, and I'm, I'm able to present them with visual models using digital technologies. And they can go through and get instant feedback, and we can have conversations on yeah. uh, misunderstandings. And then we can fix these moments they're having where they're creating the wrong model in their head. And if we can create that before they've done too many questions, we have them on this new pathway. And, and nice. we can do that using digital technology. Students, in the end of a 30-minute class, they're, they're doing sometimes 60 to 70 questions. And they're resilient, and they like it. It's Beautiful. unbelievable that they're going, can I just finish this at the end of math class? Because certainly it wasn't like that when I was a classroom teacher. It was like, when's the bell going to go? Pack up yep. five minutes early, you know? Yep. Um, so, yeah. and, and I want to and I want to pursue this some more. We need to take a break right now, but we'll come back. And I think we need to jump on. Okay, so exactly how how can we get these kinds of results in in the in the math and science classes? So this is Big Beacon uh, Radio with our special guest uh, Gina Jer Jerkowski, and we're talking about uh, STEM education and the STEM pipeline and and ways to be more innovative in in STEM teaching. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. 
you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg. And uh, give me a... a a call or an email if you if you need a keynote speaker to help shake up a a, a tough educational culture. And so uh, we're we're joined in this uh, final segment to uh, continue our conversation with uh, Gina Jerkowski, and we're talking about um, we're talking about STEM STEM education and and uh, ways to get these these uh, ways to use technology as a as a tool to get kids um, both as a motivational tool and as a educational device to get kids kids excited about uh, about math uh, and science learning uh, so how do we how do how do we do that what 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 are some of the key elements of of getting kids excited about uh, about math and science so that they dig it you've talked about visual you've talked about um, uh, not bringing symbols in. What, what are the key elements? Um, I, I think both what you've just said is is perfect, but also to get them solving real world problems, problems that um, where they actually feel like they're making a difference and contributing in the world to the world in, in some way that's significant. That's really important. We know that we get kids engaged and motivated, and it's especially helpful for kids who um, you know are are have feelings of depression. And um, these are things we need to get kids connected to. Is solving a real-world problem, feeling successful. And when we are using digital technologies, when we engage STEM in the classroom or in, in after-school programs, we see this resiliency change in them. I know that in a math class when they see a red X, a lot of students shut down. But when they play a video game and they fail, um, they continue on with this persistence. They, they mm. don't equate failing or not completing a level to their intelligence, but they do when they see an X in a classroom or get something wrong. So what we've learned it to do is create programs that have a problem-solving, sort of like a video game-esque um, pathway so that when they fail and they do a lot, especially with new technology, especially when they're learning math and science and they're integrating it into robotics or app development, they're going to fail a lot. But because it's so exciting, because they're so motivated, they persist through failure. And that resistance, I think, or resilience, I should say, is key, I think, for our learners. Um, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, you know, creating innovators um, and entrepreneurs. And those are people who, you know, throw something on the wall, see what doesn't work and what does work, and try again and iterate and iterate. And that's what we need to create. And we can do that by embracing STEM. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess I hadn't, I, maybe I've thought of it in that way, but the, the, you know, what's, you know, in some ways there's, there's, there's not, what's the difference between the red X and, and failing in the video game? I mean, they're both, they're both failure of a kind. And, um, is, is it an emotional difference? Well, I'm, I'm thinking from a coaching perspective, you might, or, you know, or a mindset perspective, you might say, well, it's, it's, it's growth mindset versus, um, um, uh, uh, Fixed mindset versus yeah. growth mindset, or, or it's or or but or or another thing you might say as a coach, you might say, well, maybe they're taking the red X personally, and it's it's a judgment of them as a human being. What, what's the it, from from your work? What's the difference between the red X and failing in a video game? Well, I think the students all come to school with the uh, resiliency piece, and that after you know they get so many X's uh, over the course of their lifetime, they sort of develop that that fear of failure. Um, and I do love the work of Carol Dweck uh, of Growth Mindset, and I especially love uh, the work she's doing with Joe Bowler from um, U-Cubed. She's a math professor at Stanford, and she talks about growth mindset in particular, how it connects to math. And she talks about the difference, the neural, you know, the, what's going on in the brain, the neuroscience behind the differences between um, resiliency and pushing past failure um, and owning the failure in terms of, you know, getting the X and thinking it means me, I'm stupid, or, wow, that means it didn't work and I'm going to try again. So, you know, they do great work in that area. That's who I, I uh, you know, use a lot for my research. And I find the same thing. I think that if we uh, create opportunities where they can, uh, they're on a trajectory to solve a bigger problem. It's not something that has a, a right-wrong answer right away, but it has multiple ways to get there and it has a long um, learning pathway. So along the way to get to the big thing at the end, there are little pieces that they're going to do and they're going to hit these little junctures with, um, okay, that worked or, oh, that didn't work and how can we go back and fix it? But they're so motivated and excited excited because of the end piece that they yes. stay in the game. Yeah. And so this, this, this sense of, um, yeah, the pushing, pushing path. I heard some, somebody I heard use the expression investing in failure, that somebody hadn't invested in enough failure to be successful at something. And there's a sense of uh, we, the sense of kind of you get it right and, and you're good in the area and you get it wrong and you're not versus um, needing to put enough time time on task. Well, we, we've, we've got two minutes left and, and uh, we're, we're not going to do the, the subject of, of STEM learning just, justice, but um, what one or two things uh, would you like to leave our listeners with before we well, sign I, off today? There's a really interesting report on innovation in Canada. It's called Some Assembly Required. Um, and it talks a little bit about Canada's productivity, Canada's ability to be innovative. And it it says, you know, um, we're a little bit lagging in the area of innovation if we really want to embrace innovation and move forward, move our country forward, um, that we need to take a strong look at STEM skills. I think STEM skills don't only give us the math skills, which are critical and they're very important, but they don't only give us the math skills and the science skills. They actually give us the mindsets that we need to move forward in the new world to be able to embrace change, to be able to pivot, to be able to push past failure. So for me... STEM is a way to give us the 21st century skills we need, as well as to give us the technical math, science, and, you know, technology skills that we need to go forward. So it's a win-win if we can just embrace it inside schools, if we can get rid of the siloed subjects. 
And if if uh, people want to find out uh, more about your work and the 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 things that that you're doing in your lab and and in your research, uh, how do they how do they get a hold of you? How do they get hold? Of you? Oh, thank you for asking. They can um, check us out online at www.stemlearninglab.com. Um, I'm also teaching. Uh, I'm a sessional instructor at the University of Calgary, teaching the pre-service teachers um, STEM courses. It's now mandatory that all of our future teachers graduating from University of Calgary will go forward with um, a STEM credit. So I'm teaching there, so you can also reach me there. One of the newest, most interesting things I'm teaching is a graduate-level course called Creativity Across the STEM Disciplines. And um, anyway, uh, feel free to contact me on any of those things if you're interested out there. I definitely love engaging and, and having conversations with people. Great. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, Gina. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guests, uh, Tom Thompson and Gina Jerkowski. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at www.bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.